you know, there's no way to know your unknown unknowns, right? Especially in large complex systems, you end up, you try to anticipate the most likely thing to happen. And that's usually the last thing that bites you, right? Because you're prepared for it. Okay, what is the impact rate if a region goes down? Is that something that we can, um, you know, that's going to be survivable? Or is it something that we're going to need to invest to mitigate? Um, and then what does that look like? Well, if you listened to last week's episode of Cloud Talk, then you know that this one doesn't sound anything like the ethical issues surrounding IT, which is what we told you was coming. No, we changed up the order because we wanted to bring you a timely conversation about an event that occurred back on November 25th of 2020. So today we're talking about designing for application resiliency and disaster recovery. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. Kelly, AWS has been seeing a widespread outage for over an hour. AWS, of course, is Amazon's massive cloud business that powers many companies, websites, and operations at large. Companies in impacted include NYC Transit, Sirius XM Radio, Ring, and Adobe Cloud. The list, though, Kelly, is long and growing the longer that this outage lasts. For some, though, like... Well, not good news for AWS. In fact, those are the kinds of reports that no hyperscale cloud provider ever wants to hear. In fact, as businesses like this plan for daily operations and even upgrades, this tends to be the litmus test for success or failure. Keep us off the news. Now, in today's episode, I thought we'd dig into the topic of application resiliency, what actually happened over at AWS, and how you and your company can use cloud providers like AWS, Azure, and Google, you know, the ones where you can't control the underlying infrastructure, but you know what? You can still build for application availability. But first, I thought we might set the stage by hearing from a chief operating officer who has to plan for just these types of events on a daily basis. I asked Shabroto Mukherjee, the COO of Rackspace Technology, to come and help set the stage for the topic. Now, Shabroto's challenge is a little harder than most because he has to solve for both the internal systems, the availability of these internal systems for Rackspace, as well as the support teams who look after all of these types of systems for all 120,000 customers of Rackspace. Shabroto, welcome to the program. Hey, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. And our conversation today uh, focuses very much on disaster recovery. And this is in response to the incident that AWS had back on November 25th. And we thought it was a timely conversation to come in and, and sort of unpack that. And so you as a COO, uh, having been that for a good long time now, of course, you look after both our support for our customers, but also all of the internal systems. Um, you know, what, how, do, how do you approach DR as, as a business leader? What are, your, what are your thought processes? Yeah, so that's a good question. And it's very topical. And it's, um, you know, as uh, technology becomes ever more important to business, it's becoming even more important. And all of our customers, their patience has become smaller and smaller, shorter and shorter. So the amount of downtime or interruption that we can take in our businesses has reduced. 
right? It's true of Rackspace as well, both internal Rackers and our customers expect almost always on environment. So how do you think about resiliency in an environment like this? You think about it first and foremost, from what is the business requirement or the customer requirement? Customer could be an internal customer or external customer. What is the customer requirement that you are trying to meet? And at what price point are you trying to meet it? Once you know that, there are many, many solutions that can be designed. So uh, obviously it's not something necessarily that, that you set, but you actually are responding to the business in what they are, you know, what, what their goals are for their systems, what their goals are for their data and availability for their own individual customers. Absolutely. And in the, in the case of Rackspace, oftentimes the end user is a racker, but at many times the racker is servicing an end customer. So we also have to think through as to how does it affect the Rackspace brand if our internal tools, systems, et cetera, are not enabling the Rackers to provide the fanatical experience that they are so well known for. That's a great point because it's not just about uh, an employee not being able to get the job done, but the downstream cascading impact of that customer and that customer's customers or employees, whoever's utilizing that system. It, uh, the blast radius, as we say, is pretty wide. It's pretty wide. And how many times are you, uh, you know, not happy to hear from somebody who's interacting with you from a company that his or her IT system is letting them down. As an IT professional, I cringe every time a service provider tells me, oh, it's this IT that's not working. I put myself in the shoes of their CIO and their COO and think how they must feel when their employees are not able to serve their customers. I don't want that to happen in Rackspace. All right, great context from a chief operating officer. And with that as a backdrop, let's turn our attention back to the specific issues that the world, or at least the eastern portion of the U.S., experienced when AWS had its issues on November 25th. And for this, I've asked a few folks into the virtual studio today. You'll hear from Miles Anderson, who's the vice president of professional services at Rackspace Technology. And I've also asked Ethan Schumann, who's a senior manager in the architecture and engineering practice in our professional services teams who are actually building resilient solutions for customers today. All right, Miles, set the stage. What happened on November 25th? Yeah, so I think as most of our listeners probably know, uh, there was a relatively large outage uh, in uh, in AWS that uh, quite a few customers uh, of ours and others experienced. Um, and uh, on Black Friday, no less, which I think for retail customers is uh, a big problem. Um, and this happened in uh, a region that's grown a bit notorious uh, over over the years, uh, the U.S. East uh, one region that's here in my backyard in Virginia, which makes me a little bit sad. Uh, my, yeah, my home region, I, I see these data centers all the time. Um, yeah, so there's a, a pretty big... Um, pretty big outage that uh, that a lot of customers experience the fallout from. And um, this is, you know, not the first time this has happened, not the first time it's happened in this region. Um, this is something that's getting kind of more, more rare, right? So it's a, it's a pretty rare event, but yeah, not, um, not how we want to celebrate Black Friday. Uh, certainly if you're a retailer and an, and an e-commerce retailer at that. Yeah, not a really good day. Now, what was the service, Ethan, specifically that, that was the culprit in this case? 
Absolutely. So AWS was uh, very serendipitous, right? Like this happens right in the day when everybody's trying to use their platform. But um, Kinesis is one of the most intrinsic services that AWS has. It's one of their backbones. Um, For those unfamiliar, it's just used for event streaming at the most highest level of description. Basically, they were trying to do an increase of capacity. So they were trying to actually scale the service up to provide more for the world. And there ended up being a uh, OS limitation they hit on the front end, that a number of threads that they're allowed to run that ended up just causing catastrophic failure, basically. Catastrophic failure, not phrases you want to hear on Back Friday, not phrases you want to hear anytime. Um, but but so not all, everybody in the world uses a kines- uses Kinesis. I mean, it's it's like you said, it's a event streaming uh, allows you to do some analysis around the what, what's happening in that stream. Uh, but why did it take everybody out? So that's actually a fantastic question, and it leads to one of the most, I guess lesser known factoids around the way AWS operates in that they don't really use a lot of magic sauce in their backend systems, how they actually run the platform. They, they eat their own dog food, so to speak. So, you know, Kinesis is an integral part of the way AWS manages AWS, like us as customers. So whenever one of these intrinsic backbone services goes down, it has a rippling effect across every customer and a lot of other like ancillary services that we use. Um, so they ended up actually being just as, if not sometimes more subjective to these outages than we are. What a, what a canary in the coal mine type of a thing when you're running right. your own services on totally. your own services. Um, you know, and kind of kind of a gutsy move to go make a major architectural change well, literally in the middle of the day. I mean, we run yeah. 40 data centers around the world at Rackspace. We don't make a lot of changes in the middle of the day for our customers. Yeah, that's, it's kind of a uh, product of AWS's culture a little bit, right? Because they're very much about modernizing, adding nines to their availability, um, and just kind of increasing velocity. So for them, this was supposed to be kind of an ex- insignificant capacity change that just had a downstream rippling effect. Um, I think this is a learning moment for them. You'll see it again in the future because, you know, disaster is inevitable, but it's kind of a, uh, it's a world-class organization and they reacted very quickly to it. But yeah, it was very un, uh, undesirable. Yeah, I think the, the other thing to, to hit on, Jeff, is that's, I mean, that's where the world is moving, right? And that's what we're helping our customers do uh, as we're kind of getting away from that. Oh, let's make the change in the evening or over the weekend. Um, I remember, you know, my first job out of school was production support at Nextel and, and it was weekends doing deployments. That's what we did. Um, but now you're seeing with uh, modern application development and, and CICD pipelines and AB deployments and those kinds of methodologies, um, that yet yeah, like AWS and others, you know, Netflix and, and Google, all those who deploy hundreds of times a day to these different services. And we never notice by and large, um, except for, you know, every, every once in a while, um, you know, one, one of these kind of things will happen. So let's, you know, so they're able to do that on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-by-moment basis uh, as they deploy hundreds of times a day, like you just said. So so let's talk about, you know, how they have constructed the network of data centers and services and all of the things um, as we then will hopefully start to unpack how companies can build for redundancy, build for availability. So let's, let's talk about availability zones and all that stuff. So let's start with small services and work our way out. Yeah, so I think um, it's it's important to understand the overall architecture um, of AWS. Uh, so for starters, when you're going and deploying an application or deploying a solution, uh, you're beginning with you know core services, and those core services reside within a region, right? So a region is a, a geographical area. It's kind of the best way to think about it. So US East 1 is right here in, in my backyard, mostly in, in the Northern Virginia area. Um, and there are others uh, throughout the world. 
um, inside of those regions, then you have the concept of an availability zone, uh, which you could loosely think of it as an individual data center. So each availability zone has its own, you know, independent power supply, right? So you're going to avoid those kinds of outages that are going to impact, um, you know, that that specific area uh, of of a data center or the data center itself. Um, Building redundancy and reliability inside of a region, right, inside of multiple availability zones is actually pretty easy and straightforward. So a lot of the tooling AWS has and, and is available um, can, can help you fail over to availability zones and make things redundant within a region pretty easily and pretty simply. Where things get considerably trickier is in avoiding scenarios like the one that happened on November the 25th, uh, which is there is a, a failure of a service that supports an entire region, right? So S3, I think, is probably the most classic example of a, of a major service that is the foundation for um, most of what AWS builds on top of, as well as what many, many customers use um, as a foundational sort of core uh, regional uh, service. Um, and so when you have an outage of one of those services, that's a different situation that you're trying to mitigate where you're losing um, a lot of the capabilities that are in a particular region. And now this requires you to be able to have your application, your solutions available in other regions and to fail them over pretty quickly, um, which at times also means having your data replicated into other regions and your solutions, um, which you know I think as Ethan could talk about a little bit on the architecture side, there's not an easy button for that. Right? There are um, there's great tools. I mean, it's far easier than it would be if you had to build your own data center or cut over into a colo. So the tooling available to do it is there, um, but it's it's not nearly as easy as failing over within a region. Um, yeah, and it's kind of a day zero construct, right? Because when you start talking about you know in, in an availability zone, everything AWS offers typically natively spans that. You know, load balancers, um, you know basically anything that's bound or built within that specific region, EC2s, the way we do security groups, things like that. But then when you start talking about, hey, I want to run disparate workloads or, some, or the same workload across different geographies, such as, you know, two regions within the U.S., then you have to start thinking about things such as the state of your application. How do I store the data? How do I make it synchronous across both regions? And so you have to make design decisions really early on that help influence whether that's going to be workable or whether you're going to end up in kind of a hair pulling mode trying to figure out how to hamstring your application along to actually support this. So, um, you know, native things such as using like RDS or global tables um, and Dynamo, like these give you the capabilities out of the box to basically say my app is alive and well in two regions. And if one region goes down, it's still made whole in another place. Um, it so really is kind of a day zero thing that you have to really think for it from the beginning. It's easier the sooner you start that start it, right? Like it's a snowball effect. The longer you wait to go multi-region, the more effort you're going to backtrack from the work you've already done. Well, and you bring up a super interesting point, and that is it's a day zero decision. It's a day zero construct, meaning that it needs to be considered from the point of requirements. And that's where a lot of people, I think, a lot of times mm -hmm. don't necessarily think about DR. In the old days, you know, I've been at Rackspace for a long time when we were, you know, in a large lot of cases just putting servers online. And in those scenarios, for us to go to a DR environment for a customer across multiple data centers was literally duplicate the infrastructure, find a way to replicate the, the apps, find a way to replicate the data. And then how do you handle the network failover piece? I don't want to say simple, but there weren't a lot of switches to pull. There wasn't a lot of creativity that you could put into it. 
there was just a really big check to write because it was, you know, double or triple the cost of what the original infrastructure was. Literally, when a customer would come in, every customer would come in and they would say, oh, and I want it to be DR. And then we'd say the cost and then it would say, oh, and never mind. Because it literally is, it's not just a doubling of the infrastructure, it's doubling plus all of the software and the orchestration and the people to make sure that that fires. Because Ethan, you brought up a really good point when we were talking about this earlier. And that is, until you actually do a failover, you don't have DR, you just have a big check. That's absolutely right. I mean, because, you know, there's no way to know your unknown unknowns, right? Especially in large, complex systems, you end up, you try to anticipate the most likely thing to happen. And that's usually the last thing that bites you, right? Because you're prepared for it. Um, We find that organizations who, yeah, basically your DR plan doesn't exist until you've tried it. And usually you don't try it for fun because it's really hard to... um, kind of quantify that type of chaos engineering. Like, I think this is a very prototypical problem we've seen in the cloud as people have become more and more interested in creating these, uh, you know, uh, highly available systems is how do I quantify doing this type of engineering where I'm actually adversely impacting my system? Like, how do I create an ROI for chaos engineering? It's a really hard thing to do and it's kind of a mind shift you have to make. Okay, quick pause here for you non-software developers in the room. Chaos engineering is the discipline of experimenting on software systems in production in order to build confidence in the system's capability to withstand unexpected conditions. Now, in software development, a given software system's ability to tolerate failures while still ensuring adequate quality of service is typically specified as a requirement. However, development teams often fail to meet this requirement due to factors such as short deadlines or lack of knowledge of the field. Now, chaos engineering is a technique to meet this requirement. In a lot of cases, it's literally software that fiddles with production systems to see how they handle such thing as individual service failures or network latency or even catastrophic failures. And it's not just a, like you guys mentioned earlier, I think it's a really good point. You know, in your data center world, it was just simple math, right? It was linear arithmetic, double the things. Whereas now you go into the cloud and you have a sliding scale of capability. So you can do what we call a pilot light, where you just keep a small microcosm of your application up and running. Then you can scale it up when you need to, which buys you a little bit of, it it adds a little delay to the mechanism, but it works. You can go full-fledged active-active. And then the word DR becomes redundant because you're just running all the time in both regions. And then there's keeping everything off, right? So there's this like sliding scale of figuring out exactly what your RPO and RTO are and then how to correctly dial that needle into what you need. And so much more complex when you go back to the business requirements. What are we trying to do? Are we just trying to get a point back with the data? Are we trying to keep a service alive? Right. Uh, and then when now more than ever with the, with the capability that exists in, in these hyperscale clouds is uh, you can really dial in that the ROI on, on what happens. Some people may just want to take the service off and take the hit on the chin because it's not that big of a, of a deal. They just need to not lose their data. I think that's one of the most important decisions we can make too, is realizing when it's not necessary, right? You don't always have to run all the things all the time. So you may have a, a tier three app with a 24 hour recovery time objective or recovery point objective. And you're right. You'll just save money and it has no real adverse effects. So it's a, uh, like I said, like we said earlier, it's a day zero decision and there's a lot of aspects to it that the cloud brings that are both good and difficult. So. Well, now you guys look after a relatively important customer for us who will rename, who may remain nameless. Um, but these were decisions that you had all along the way. Maybe you can mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that and what the result of their experience was uh, on the 25th. Totally. 
Um, so yeah, we have a really large customer who was, you know, in the effort of creating a microservice ecosystem in the cloud. You're talking 60 plus microservices with some really strict contracts and a lot of moving data. Like just the largest backbone of their um, enterprise is how much data they move around in this app suite. Um, architected from the beginning, you know, in a completely cloud native way where, you know, we do synchronous replication across regions. We paid the extra bullet, the engineering time and architecture time to kind of design that way up front. And the end result ended up being a successful failover during this event. While it wasn't the cleanest thing, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't somebody woke up and got an email and said, DR is done. You know, a little human invention was required, but it was successful. And, and honestly, the customer's biggest feedback to us, wow, we learned what we don't know. And now we're going to go forward and we're going to get stronger and better and hopefully add another nine to our resiliency on this stuff. So it was a, it was a big moment. And uh, what was their experience? I mean, and, and what, uh, you know, what did you guys learn? Is it all perfect? No, nothing's ever perfect and, and failure is inevitable. Um, I think they knew that, at least from the top of the organization. But the leadership was, uh, you know, A, they were happy their application came back and uh, they were able to not lose any data whatsoever. But again, I also think they were very happy to learn that, hey, this is kind of an eye opener, but it wasn't one of those, you know, I got to break a finger to learn here, right? Like I actually just kind of got a little poke and said, okay, now I need to really refocus on this really mature app and start looking at chaos engineering. Maybe I need to readdress my redundancy. Maybe there's a piece that we missed the first time we went through. Just that kind of iterative mindset was reinforced during this. And this. Well, and, you know, you never want to pass up a chance to really, you know, you've heard the phrase, you want to pass up a chance to exploit a good, you know, disaster. But in this scenario, it's a great, use the phrase eye-opener. You know, you know what? Maybe investing in chaos engineering where you sounded a little crazy three months ago when you presented it to them and they mm -hmm. said, hmm, nice idea there, Ethan, but that's a big check. Uh, now, now you can put some hard numbers to it. What would have happened to that organization had they lost it all on that day? I mean, without getting into specifics, it would have been catastrophic, right? They are a very point in time type organization as far as the way they interact with their customers. So, you know, every minute down is a massive loss for them, um, especially at the scale they operate. So I think we can go back to the, the stories we told when this customer um, cut over to the cloud to begin with. So we did a massive migration and cutover for them um, where they moved their really the bulk of their operations from on-prem to in the cloud and didn't make the newspaper, right? No hiccups, no no issues. I think they they folded up the operations center like two weeks early because they were bored out of their mind. Um, had that, had this failover, right? Had this failover sort of not gone well, it would have been newspaper worthy, right? Um, and that's generally what, uh, you know, our customers are trying to avoid. Well, and what you guys are involved in on a day-to-day -day basis is not just, hey, how do we write an app, but how do you truly transform a company to be cloud ready and be cloud native. And as we know, that isn't just technology, it's people and it's process. And now you get to engage in this real time conversation. You know, let's dial it back another, and you don't have to go back that far. Let's go back three or four or five years. And this would have been a waterfall conversation. Let's let's think about what the next right. DR looks like that maybe we can be ready for next year, as opposed to the work that you can do real time, near real time. Yeah, and honestly, I. I think you're nailing it because, you know, even just a few short years ago, the, the time delta between having this conversation with the business to when you actually are able to manifest these systems, it's very pie in the sky, right? Like, hey, we're going to plan for DR. 
And in Q4 of three years from now, we'll have this capability. Whereas today I can go say, hey guys, here's what's going to happen if you don't build it like this. And then I can go build it in a couple of weeks and show them and be like, this is what it'll look like when it fails. Like I can go test this. I can do tabletop exercises and all this stuff. You keep the business users and the technologists closer together than ever. Well, and it's, it's also speaks a ton to this new model that you guys really pioneered over at Annika. And that was, it was, it wasn't, Hey, we're going to build you your thing. And then, you know, have fun storming the castle and walk off to the next job. You guys are embedded. Your teams are embedded with, with this, with all, well, all your customers, but this one specifically that you're able to work with them in real time. Hmm. And this image that's coming to mind is you are fine tuning the system as their business requirements change as business itself changes, and as AWS literally evolves underneath your feet, you get to play what if and and do those tabletop exercises, prove the value and implement again in yeah. near real time. Yeah. Um, and when you have these pencils down type moments, when your entire business comes into a, a basically a phone call between leadership, all with you know, incapable of changing anything and just praying and hoping that it works. It really does come and show just like kind of the value you get when you invest in this type of activity up front. So um, yeah, we try to preach that, right? Because you, the technology doesn't solve bad habits and people will always find a way to abuse the way technology is meant to be, um, you know, implemented. And I think kind of addressing that from an organizational perspective from top down in, in companies really helps them realize that, you know, we can still do wrong here. And we have to, not only do we have the tools, we have to use them correctly and we need people helping us sometime. Well, and, you know, as we sit here talking about this current and slash future state of what true active development looks like, um, you know, we gives you a chance to even go back to a comment I made earlier where in the past we would make decisions around, maybe we just need to save the data. You know, Miles, you've, you've had some opinions on that and thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really important to note on this most recent outage is that customers didn't lose any data. Uh, and so we, we had services that were unavailable, but the, the data is still there. So once the services resume, the data didn't go anywhere. And I think we've gotten to a really interesting place uh, that I'm not sure how much we noticed where it used to be disaster recovery was all about how do I preserve data? That, that was the primary concern. We've gotten to a place where we're nearly taking that for granted now. When we look at solutions like you know S3 and EBS that have uh, many nines of durability, I'm taking for granted that my data is going to be preserved and I can also replicate it to a different region, you know, if five or six nines isn't enough and I, I don't want to do that. And that's easy to do as well. So it's, it's amazing to me that through the course of this outage uh, and even the others, right, where there were S3 issues a couple of years ago, there's no data loss uh, that's happening with that. And so um, it's, it's nice to be in a place where we can take data loss almost, right? I can say completely because um, crazy things can happen, but we can almost take that for granted. And now we're focused on application availability and that's really moving the conversation in the right direction. Well, and Ethan, you had a really interesting point about that when we were visiting before as well around strategies for this, whether it's do you need to move the whole thing or do you just need to move an aspect of the application? Because, you know, before, again, we, we rephrase what we said earlier, and that was DR was, you know, 2x the, the cost for the infrastructure, then all the services and software to make that happen. And you did it entirely for the entire thing, as opposed to now you can have a conversation, a business continuity conversation around aspects of the application. Maybe dig into that a little bit, Ethan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of, um, that comes with designing your apps to be more of like a kind of a microservice type architecture where you can decouple things. You know, when you have, instead of one giant monolith, like a giant Java runtime that, you know, supports your entire app, when you can break that functionality 
functionality out discreetly. And then you can say, all right, well, this piece is really important, but my user's ability to upload a PDF may not be a tier one capability, depending on what my business need is, you know, my business drivers. So you can start to kind of zone in on the things that are incredibly important and must stay up all the time versus the things that can be, you know, whether it be a financial driver, whether it be an operational driver, you can kind of find a way to slide that needle around. Because like we said earlier, this is no longer a linear arithmetic about trying to do DR. You don't just double all the things. It's an exact, it's a inexact science now. So, well, and maybe you don't have to move the whole app. Maybe, maybe you don't need all the right. data of order history. We just need to be able to queue orders and deal with with the you know once once the whole thing's back to life later we can we can process that. Maybe we don't have to give the entire yeah. experience. Well, and and let's also you made the comment before that we really need to think deeper when we start spanning some of these these regions these zones. Um, why is that more difficult? Uh, and why does it require more more calories to be burned on the front end to figure out how we're going to handle that? Well, it's it's kind of the nature of the beast, right? Because um, you know all the hyperscalers out there. Of course, we focus on AWS, but they all kind of have their own peculiarities in how they implement things. Um, AWS is constantly growing. Like uh, I remember designing solutions for months, and then they come out with it on a Tuesday night with no fanfare, and they basically invalidated all of my work. So it's still like a massively growing platform. And so some things are region specific and you have to really have that domain knowledge to be able to say, hey, you need to really think about, you know, the way you're doing load balancing because there's no GLB implementation right now. Whereas opposed to like Miles said, S3 is redundant. You can replicate it very easily. Like a lot of these services have this capability. So it's about, instead of just being able to draw lines between boxes in an architecture diagram and say, we're going to use Kinesis and we're going to use S3, it's, I know kind of the underbelly of what these systems do, how they work, what they can, what they cannot do, and really kind of having that expertise to drill in and say, all right, we know how to take every aspect of your application. We know what parts of it need to be replicated, what needs a little handholding, and which ones have magic buttons, right? And once you kind of get to that level of knowledge, it becomes... And, and a practice and kind of processing what the application stack is, what the architecture is, and then applying those rules on top of any any new system you see. Um, the hardest part for me as a person who loves this stuff is that I have to wake up every morning and read RSS feeds and blogs to figure out what AWS has either changed or invalidated or improved last night. So it's a, uh, it's a constant activity, right? And it never ends for organizations big and small. And, and Ethan, something you just mentioned um, is part and parcel to this, right? Which is S3 is easy, you know, it's easy to replicate. You just kind of flip on the on switch and I can replicate it to another region. That wasn't always the case. Like I remember when that feature was announced, right? So if we go back, I don't know, this is maybe six or seven years at this point. Yeah. If you wanted to replicate S3, you had to do it yourself, right? So you had to sort of build the pipes and traverse the internet and go drop it over near their bucket. And then AWS, you know, hey, customers want this. Let's deploy S3 replication. Great. So we are watching that happen. I think the difference in where it gets tricky in doing multi-region failover is all of the architecture um, that you kind of come to rely on is at the region level. So the networking constructs, your load balancing, all of that um, really abstraction layer that kind of sits above the data center exists at the within the region. Like the regions are kind of the, the giant blocks, right, upon which this is built. But we are watching AWS continue to kind of move up the stack and and integrate the regions ever more tightly um, by continuing to provide those abstraction layers on top of the regions. And I think S3 replication is you know just a baseline service. And now we can leverage that as a part of a DR strategy to build something else. And I think they're going to continue to, to do that and to make it easier to do cross-region replication. So I think it's customers, you know, want to have and they want it to be easier. Um, but for the time being, it just requires a good bit more design work because the 
you know, the core sort of foundation of the services exists within the region. Um, and so that's Absolutely. where you have to do the design planning. It takes a bit more work to figure out how we're going to replicate our applications. But I would expect five years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if it's nearly as easy to do that as it was within uh, availability zones. Absolutely. You could almost see a kind of a vision here painted where, you know, intra region becomes as simple as intra availability zone, right? Because that's kind of the analogy right now, as you described earlier, AZs are very synonymous. Like you, you, people don't really speak in terms of AZs anymore, especially from a DR capability. They speak in terms of region because it's kind of the bumpers in the bowling alley, right? And, and you can't throw a ball over into lane six right now. Um, you've got to kind of stay in your lane as far as the networking constructs and a lot of the way the data is managed, especially the compute, you know? Um, you know, things like Kubernetes, raw EC2s, whatever you may be doing, they are all very tightly bound by definition to a, a region. Um, I don't think it'll always be that way. I, I see AWS is probably growing. You know, they just announced a new availability zone or a new region in Australia, I believe in Sydney. You know, they're going to continue to grow more of these. And as they become more geographically closer to each other, I think you're going to start seeing this kind of cross-region bleed between the way services are implemented. Because it's not a, uh, it's not a, a it's a, it's a, desi- uh, ugh or we say that it's a um, technical limitation, right? Because when you're implementing all of these, they all have a backbone. They run on in some cluster somewhere with a front end that interfaces with the world. And that just so happens to live in a specific region, right? Um, you know, even I am has it's, it's, even though it's a global service, it has its backbone or pieces in specific regions. So yeah, I'm not to belabor the point, but I do think we're going to kind of care less about this fact as time goes on. But I think as we move to serverless, we, we almost sort of naturally care less, right? So if I have a server centric totally. architecture, now I have to concern myself with which region the server is in, which availability zone, those are things I worry about. I need to replicate it to a different region. Uh, and that's a sort of almost near physical manifestation of that application. But as I move into a true serverless architecture, well, now I can leverage globally available services and rely on sort of automatic replication of my code to be running in the region that's most appropriate. Um, um, and you know, if I've got something like S3 and I can replicate the data behind it or globally available DynamoDB, like it uh, doesn't really matter. As long as there's a region running somewhere, uh, I'm, I'm good. Um, so I think as we continue yeah. to morph architecture more towards serverless, some of the old school DR thinking and having to explicit replication just goes away. You're getting really close to one of my favorite bar arguments right now. Uh, well, if there were bars. Uh, basically the idea behind serverless is that, you know, we, we talk about this math you have to do to figure out how much it costs. Like that almost completely disappears, right? Because you're paying per the SIP. So, you know, when you run some compute, when you process some data, you know, especially in a well-architected event driven, you know, uh, serverless architecture, you, I've told customers that you need to stop using the term DR and you just need to say highly available, right? Because then you can say, I have my copy of my code in a Lambda in, re- in East, copy of my Lambda in West. And I can use DNS or some kind of flip to say, I want to funnel traffic in either direction. And they just process, right? They're identipotent, they're stateless. Like these things just operate on their own. They can replay in either region. So you get to a point where, you know, DR in itself becomes a legacy term because you're just always running everywhere and you're not paying for it, right? You're only paying for the compute that actually gets consumed. So um, yeah, I'm excited for this type of stuff. Well, and it's, it's you guys are making an, an incredible point as you, you know, dig into the, 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 
the incredibleness of the of the technology is that the implementation and how you think about that becomes easier. You know, it's a flip of a switch as opposed to a bunch of code that has to get written to make it happen. But what doesn't happen is the business conversation of what actually needs to occur for this business to be successful. And then it's technology practitioners like yourselves and your teams who then ultimately go and do that. Now that changes from time to time in how how that happens. You talk about how the technology evolves and shifts, and we know that. Um, but ultimately, it's um, uh, it, it's about folks like yourselves who make it happen. Now, here's what I want to ask each of you, and I'll give you, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you each a separate question. Um, really, it's about how do we take this forward? So as the technology exists today, and we think about greenfield development, um, Ethan, what do people need to consider from an architectural perspective uh, uh, as, as they approach availability. To echo what I just said a few minutes ago, basically it's about architecting your app so it's not reliant on itself, right? When you start introducing things like state management and how do I, you know, how do I mitigate whenever I lose an app for a few seconds, you're kind of in a losing battle already. Um, I, I think new, especially greenfield applications need to start looking at how do I become an event-oriented architecture? How do I remove state everywhere possible? How do I introduce technology such as streaming where I can replay events and I can create kind of an identified infrastructure and that the world I don't have to care about when I process something, right? Like it becomes, hey, this thing happened. I can replay it again and I can do it in any region whenever I want. And it's not going to change the existing state of my system. So um, it's a depending on the maturity of an organization, like how far that carrot away is from the front of the horse changes drastically. But it is a uh, I think it's achievable for almost any uh organization as long as like i said they do it at day zero got it all right and then over to you miles for those applications those 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 hundreds those thousands of applications that are running maybe even in uh us east one uh what do we do with those applications uh with that that are running there now how do people think about making sure that the next outage doesn't impact them yeah, um, I, I think that's the the first question to uh, to ask is identifying you know what's running where, um, and then running the scenarios that that Ethan was talking about, right? Which is a little bit of a not a necessarily a chaos monkey where they're going to go in and break stuff intentionally, um, but running those kinds of scenarios, right? Where we're looking at which applications are running where, what happens if we were to lose you know a region or lose a specific service, um, and walk through those scenarios and figure out what the impacts are. Um, at that point, then it's a business decision um, in terms of whether or not uh, that is an, an outage or an impact um, and, and for what duration of time that it could be sustained. Uh, and I think we're, we're to the point now where customers don't really have to worry about being out for a week, right? We're talking about 24, maybe 48 hours at the top end. So that's the scenario we're planning around. Um, and this is something we do with customers all the time. Um, so we're helping them, you know, walk through their architecture and figure out how to get them where they need to go. Um, but I think in the immediate term, it's just assessing, you know, where they are right now in terms of, you know, high availability and, and failover capability. Um, and then, you know, how do, how do we architect in such a way that we're meeting the business needs? Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that every application everywhere needs to be replicated to multiple regions. That's, um, you know, from a cost perspective, that's going to be prohibited. Um, but I think businesses do need to look at and understand, OK, what is the impact rate right, if a region goes down? Is that something that we can um, you know, that's going to be survivable or is it something that we're going to need to invest to mitigate? Um, and then what does that look like? 
Okay, we normally don't do hard pitches for what <laughs> services and offerings we have at Rackspace, but I believe this one is timely and it's important. Uh, and so I'm going to ask the question, Miles, does Rackspace have a service to re- or an offering to review current architecture to from an availability, from a secu- all security and all the other things, but specifically in this case, are they covered from an availability? Do we have an offering? Yeah, um, absolutely, Jeff. And I do think it is important um, in the context of what we're seeing. Uh, and so the way that we approach this is by doing a, a Rackspace reliability review, right? And that's where we will come in uh, and assess these workloads working alongside the business um, to, to help determine what are the, the requirements, right? How long can uh, these applications be unavailable? Uh, and we'll also go in and look uh, a little bit at the underlying architecture um, and then make recommendations around, you know, how we feel that uh, particular application or that particular tool suite um, could best be, uh, you know, re-architected, if you will, or modified um, to, to be more reliable, right? And to get through these this disaster recovery state. Um, we've done this historically. This is a slight modification on what we've done historically with AWS and the well-architected review process. So there is a, a reliability pillar um, inside of that as well. And we do a great number of well-architected reviews um, on our own as well as in conjunction with AWS. Uh, but what we really wanted to do is get a good bit deeper just on the reliability pillar. And we're talking you know, specifically about um, critical business workloads that, you know, if they do go down, are going to be disruptive to the business um, and, and co- you know, costing revenue or costing, um, you know, uh, leaving a bad customer impression or impacting operations. And so that's really the, uh, the focal point of, of the reliability review is to, is to assess those and their architecture standards and make recommendations for the best way ahead. I mean, context is keen, right? And that's one of the biggest things we look for when we're designing this stuff. Um, it's not about just saying every app must be up 100% of the time always, because like we said, we've had in previous discussions, that's not always viable. And it actually could be a turnoff to a customer because they see a bill and they get a little sticker shock. Um, it is a very much a rationalization exercise. I think Miles nailed it. Yeah, and that's that's actually been a little bit of a knock on the well architected review um, historically is that it is uh, the pillars are based on sort of excellence, right, and making sure that you have reliability and all these sort of things. Um, that and it's not universally applicable, right? If I'm running dev and test workloads, yeah, I want to make sure that they're secure, but I don't need them to be the least bit redundant. Um, so in terms of the scoring, uh, you know, I think customers kind of take that with a grain of salt and we need to be careful how we use it. Um, but it's really the findings and the detailed analysis that happens and the conversations that it drives are, are you know, the most useful parts of that. So I'd actually saved one part of the interview that I had with Sobroto, you know, the chief operating officer over at Rackspace. And the question was, I asked him, how can practitioners like the ones we just heard or ones inside of your organization, how can you arm them best with the best advice of how to communicate this sort of stuff to the leadership inside of your organization to help make sure that there's a strategy in place that is appropriate for the business, but of course, doesn't break the bank. So I have a couple of thoughts. So one is make it about the business impact, not about the technology. You know, we technologists, I've grown up in the IT services uh, all my life, uh, you know, want to oftentimes come with the shiny new penny or the shiny new widget that we can implement, right? So uh, yes, have the widget in your back pocket, but make it about the business impact and the business goal that the, that the senior management, the top management is trying to achieve. And then drill it down a little bit more to understand what exactly needs to be resilient, right? Is the whole environment required to be resilient? Is it required that certain aspects of it need to be resilient, right? But other aspects are more, if I may use a term from 
um, a generation ago are more batch oriented and therefore don't need to be that resilient. That discussion of drilling down and understanding the business requirement and bringing a business solution to the top management is useful. Most leaders today, senior leaders, are fairly technology aware as well. So converting it down finally to things like uh, RTO or RPO, how much data will you lose, how soon will it come back all, is also required so that people can dimensionalize the risk that they are taking and decide at what price point the right solution exists. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Well, there you have it. A deep dive into disaster recovery and application resiliency from a few different dimensions and some really smart people. Suffice it to say, you can expect to hear a lot more on the topic as we head into 2021. We well, you now you heard me mentioned on the podcast a few times about the Solve Strategy Series. You know, that series of global roundtable events that we hosted over the past six months. We had some really incredible guests, but they're all complete now, including the one that I just hosted with none other than Jeremy Howard of Fast AI and Machine Learning fame. Well, I'm not telling you this just to tease you. They're all still available on demand. Just head over to solve.rackspace.com. And lastly, if you have any feedback for us or want to recommend a new topic for us in 2021, just send an email to cloudtalk at rackspace.com. Now, next, we're back on track with our episode on the ethical considerations and pitfalls in IT. Until then, this is Jeff Deverter with Cloud Talk.